When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The sound you're hearing is the magic fingers of acclaimed jazz bassist, composer, and arranger, Christian McBride. That's him on Stick and Move with his band Inside Straight from Live at the Village Vanguard. The eight-time Grammy winner is the leader of several bands of various sizes and configurations. He's collaborated with everyone from Herbie Hancock and Diana Krall to Sting and Celine Dion. He also serves as the artistic director of both the Newport Jazz Festival and the educational organization Jazz House Kids. Growing up, McBride was known to many as a child prodigy. He attended the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts in the same class as Questlove and Boys to Men. He even performed on stage with both Wynton Marsalis and Miles Davis while still in high school. I wanted to know how a young talent like McBride found his entry point to a challenging genre like jazz. The music I grew up on was James Brown. James Brown has always been my number one musical hero. Our household, you know, like you say, you grew up on Cream and, and Hendrix and Zappa. My household was full of James Brown, The Temptations, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Al Green, Isaac Hayes. So I sort of backed my way into jazz. You did? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And where, what, was, what was the beginning of that seduction? How did you decide? Because, I mean, I've, I'm not saying this to be kind. Yeah. Yeah. You seem like you could play any music you wanted to. Well, thank you. And, you. and you'd have a seat in any band you wanted. Well, that was my ultimate goal. Right. You know, my dad is also a professional bass player. And so while I'm growing up listening to all this R&B and soul music, my dad started playing with the great Cuban percussionist Mongo Santa Maria. 
And so I saw my dad play with Mongo a lot. And, you know, I thought, I don't know much about Latin music, but this is killing, you know. And I was eight years old, and I was watching dad play with Mongo, and Dizzy Gillespie was the guest soloist with the band that night. And I knew who Dizzy was. I wasn't familiar with his music, but I knew who he was. You know, who who didn't know those cheeks, you know? And I had seen him on The Muppet Show, and, you know, so he was like the only jazz musician who I knew. And after the show was over, my dad took me backstage, and uh, I remember Mel Torme was also there that night, Ella Fitzgerald and Dizzy, and, you know, just being around all these legendary jazz musicians, I thought, man, these, these, these guys are cool, you know? But even still, it wasn't until I got to middle school and I started playing the upright bass. That's when the other bass player in my family, my great uncle, he, he plays bass also, he got so excited that I was playing upright bass. He said, come over to my house. I got something for you. And he had a stack of records waiting for me. He gave me a crash course in the history of jazz in like six hours. You know, he played Miles, Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, all the way up through Weather Report and Return to Forever and things that were contemporary, like Wynton Marcellus and Terrence Blanchard. So he really pulled me all the way in. And the reason why I fell in love with jazz was partly because of the music, but also because of the way my great uncle taught me, which I feel is probably the most important thing that I wish more instructors would learn. So most jazz teachers, I think most jazz fans tend to be a little dogmatic. You know, they teach you how great the music is by belittling what you already like. And my great uncle never did that. How so? No, what do you mean? They do? They be little what? It's like Prince. Man, you don't need to listen to no Prince. That's garbage. See, you need really? to listen. To, you need to listen yeah. to Cat. The jazz is, a, jazz is a higher point. Right, right. <laughs> so, my great uncle never did that. He knew how much I loved James Brown and Michael Jackson and Prince and Rick James, and he was like, "Oh yeah, they bad too. They they bad uh-huh. too." But listen to this, you know. Yeah. And you know, he would light a cigarette, and you know, he would he had a favorite rocking chair that he like a lounge chair he sat in when he listened to his records and he would sit way down his back was almost on on the bottom of the chair and his knees would wiggle and he would talk to the record as it was playing he'd be like yeah baby Ooh, listen to that you hear what you hear you hear what miles is putting down baby you know so he was always so comical how'd you how could you turn down that invitation you know what i'm saying i said if if jazz makes him that cool i want to be like him so well, that's what got me in the Now, where did you grow up? What part of the country? Philly. You were in Philly. Mm-hmm. You were in Philly. Yep. You know, for me, I, I, I grew up with that music, you know, British Invasion, all that stuff in the 70s and you know, Pink Floyd, whatever. And then as I would told people on this show, because I'm a big classical music junkie, I was uh-huh. in a car once in 1986, I think it was, and I would turn on the radio. And, you know, all the popular music that was playing at that time ceased to speak to me. Right. So I, I turn on the radio and on comes... Schulte conducted the Chicago, and they were doing the Mahler Ninth, and I go mm-hmm. down that rabbit hole mm-hmm. of classical music forever. And the same with jazz. When I saw Fosse's movie, I just was like, you know, the mathematics of jazz. Yeah. Jazz, to me, is mathematical. Are jazz compositions written and scored like regular music, like any other music? Some of them are. You know, jazz is based on improvisation, but there is a, there's very much a form to it. Mm-hmm. For example... Most pop songs have a very strict structure, mm-hmm. you know, verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, you know, whereas jazz, you get a melody with a set of chord changes. You play that melody with those chord changes. Now, once you do that, 
you have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes. So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. I don't really know what I'm going to say, but you know enough about this subject that you can just have an open conversation about it. So that's what jazz is. For me, when I listen to different types of jazz, I mean, there's jazz I find very soothing, obviously piano. Uh, I'm a huge Oscar Peterson nut soundtracks of movies you mentioned, uh, Cab Calloway, um, mm-hmm. those sequences in Cotton Club. But then there's jazz that is like, you sure. know, I, I got no idea where we're it going. It goes that way. Yeah, it goes that way. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. It goes that way. Uh, and these guys are playing, then you're going, you know, I feel like they're going to play until they just drop. There's no end to the song. I feel they're going to play until they just pass out. Is, is that always, was twas ever thus? Was the jazz always like that? Or has it evolved over time where oh, it's much it more freeform? Definitely evolved. Before, actually, before I answer that, knowing that you're a big Oscar Peterson nut, you might want to know that my godfather was the late, great Ray Brown. Oh yeah! Oh my I god! I actually have one of his bases. Oh my god! Yeah, oh my yeah. God, so oh so god. Ray Ray lives with me every day, and therefore so does Oscar. Um, but it has evolved big time. You know, one beautiful thing there's a built-in challenge with jazz because no one's ever played jazz to get rich or famous. We play it because we love it. It's the highest form of of musical artistry in that you get to bring all of these things in one place and interpret it through this lens of of what we call jazz, you know, this this swing-based blues idiom, you know. But in the 60s, when people like Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor and Coltrane left Miles Davis's band, he starts to evolve on his own. The music took this extremely cataclysmic explosion where, like, it would turn into free jazz, or what some would call avant-garde, meaning that you have a form, but you don't actually have to stick to that form anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, the, if the song is 12 bars, well, once we start improvising, let's make it 13 bars. Let's make it 14 bars. Now, the challenge is that that's a lot of fun for the musicians, but sometimes the listener is going, what the hell are you people yeah. doing? Yeah. Right? You guys are having a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying this. <laughs> and so, uh, but who would you say were some of the pioneers there, rather, in terms of the, the changes? Like, who's a person that came along and clicked, there's a change? Well, I, I think most people would say Ornette Coleman was sort of like the definition. Like, he was the demarcation point in... Huh. You know, what Miles Davis and Horace Silver and Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers were doing up until the late 50s. And then Ornette came along and just kind of really shook the tree. And like, you know, he he caused a stir when he came on the scene. So most would say Ornette Coleman was sort of like the godfather of free jazz. What I notice is that when I read about, because you seem like a very robust, physically fit, healthy man. Mm. And I wonder, what is it about <laughs> jazz that, no more so than the, the rock and roll world, but for sure, but a lot of the people in that world were very troubled people. Like, oh, Bill yeah. Evans is somebody that I was obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And I got all the Bill Evans records I could. And Evans singing with Tony Bennett, and Bubba, I love Bill Evans. And I found that, that his life was horrible. Yeah. I mean, he was like a huge, he was a heroin addict and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And Miles was all messed up. I mean, not saying that the jazz plays into that any more so than rock and roll. Right. But to this day, do you find there's a spirit 
There's a soul to the people that can play that music well that's a tormented soul. I don't know if that's a myth or a fact, because just like you said, I mean, you can find just as many musicians in any other style of music that had a lot of Troubles. personal problems, right. you know. <laughs> but uh, I feel like the way jazz has been probably inside the last half century, you find less of that now than ever. Right. Now, now, on the other hand, one of the great legends who I played with early in my career was the late great trumpeter Freddie Hubbard. And I remember Freddie... He told this to my friend Clark Gayton, great trombone player. He says, see, man, you know what's wrong with you young cats? Y'all don't drink. Y'all don't smoke. Y'all don't eat meat. Y'all health conscious now. Y'all dead by 9 o'clock. Hey, man, like, man, what the hell is that, man? Hey, you know what? You sound like it. But, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Harold Clerman spoke at this school when I went to acting school, and he did this lecture there, the famous producer, Harold Clerman. And when it was over, he, they, someone said to me, what would you do differently? And by then, he was in his 80s. Yeah. He goes, what would I do differently? He said, I'd go to more parties. I'd stay out late at night. I'd have more alcohol. He just was like so balls to the wall. Now, is it tough in the, I mean, people in the classical world, people in every corner of yeah. the music business are lamenting the difficulty with digital downloads. Is it is it tough in jazz as well, obviously? Well, it was so tough before then. I don't know if it really has mattered that much, right. you know, because uh, even before streaming came along, both jazz and classical musicians had the smallest piece of the pie. I think it was like 1% and 3% of the entire record buying market. So, you know, all of our money comes from playing live performances. When do you first go on the road? When are you in a club and you're getting paid? Yeah. When did that happen? 1989. I graduated from high school, and by that time, I had become good friends with Wynton Marcellus, who right. was the hottest young name in jazz. And you met him where? I met him in Philly. He came to do a, a master class. And uh, I attended this master class, and, you know, I told him how much I admired his music, and I had all of his records. And he kind of put me on the spot. He says, yeah, what, what do you play? I said, I play the bass. He said, go get it. And so I ran and grabbed my bass, and all of the kids in the classroom were like, ooh, you know, what's he about to do? And so I uh, went and said, let's play something. And uh, we played a little blues. And a couple of nights later, he said, hey, my band is playing at the Academy of Music. I want you to come. Oh, my God. And so, how old were you? Fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, You're playing with Winton at yeah. the Academy of Music when yeah. you were 15. Yeah, well, yeah. he just invited me to the show. I didn't know he was going to actually invite me to come Oh, he didn't in. tell you that you were going to play? No. He said, come see the show. Man, I'm sitting backstage with two of my friends, one of which was the late, great Joey D. Francesco. And Winton gets on the microphone. I see his bass player is putting his bass down. And my feet start getting like, where is he going? And Winton gets on the microphone. He says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you about this kid I met at this master class a couple of days ago. Like, what? And he's like, 2,000 people in the audience. You know, he said, I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about him. Please welcome Christian McBride to the stage. And I mean, like, I had icicles coming off of my hands like, oh, oh my God. God. And we played what was the title track to his new album at that time. It's called Jay Mood. From that point on, 
he became a big brother, a mentor. He started telling people about me, say, hey, you got to look out for this kid in Philly. And uh, so by the time I moved to New York to go to college, a few jazz musicians knew who I was. So uh, the saxophonist Bobby Watson found out that I was going to Juilliard. And he came and said, uh, hey, I want you to make some gigs with me. I was like, what? You know, so Bobby gave me my first gig in New York, and that was in the fall of 1989 at Birdland, back when it was up on uh, 105th Street. So Bobby kind of, he kicked me off in my career in New York. Now, when you talk about you guys don't drink enough, you don't smoke yeah, Freddie enough. Hubbard. Freddie yeah, Hubbard. Yeah. So when you get Freddie Hubbard's admonition that you're not living the right life, what was it like for you to be that young around these guys? <laughs> well, specifically... Was your mother picking you up at the stage door at the end of the show? She was definitely worried. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because... My mother saw all the musicians that my dad played with, and they come from their old school. So when I told my mom I wanted to be a professional jazz musician, she's like, oh, God, you know, really? You sure? She had to go lie down for a little while. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so uh, Winton, because he was so, so well-studied, he was sort of like the complete opposite of what the image of a jazz musician had mm-hmm. been. You know, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he was clean, well-studied, well-read. He actually had a conversation with my mom said, listen, Mr. McBride, it's not like it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, your son's going to be all right. You know, I'll look out for him. He's got a lot of big brothers who look out for him. You know, so he talked, he made it easier for my mom to let me move to New York. But when I started playing with Freddie, actually a little bit of Bobby Watson too. There was still a lot of that old school element. You know, a lot of tough love. You know, they didn't put their hand on your back and say, you know, Next time, maybe you should do it like this. You know, they were like, hey, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. You know. It's professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jazz bassist Christian McBride. If you enjoy conversations with preternaturally gifted musicians, check out my episode with Christian McBride's band and classmate, Amir Questlove Thompson. We weren't even really going to accept the position. And then the funniest thing happened. We were on UCLA campus. I went to do a quick interview in my dressing room. And when it was over, six minutes later, I opened the door. And on the field grass, Jimmy and all eight members of the Roots were in the eight is enough human pyramid stance. And I looked at my manager. We just looked at each other. And we're like, we're not giving him this guy, are we? What Jimmy managed to do was disarm us in less than 10 minutes. He's that guy, like, when you watch the movie and the guys are trying to disassemble the bomb in, like, 0.3 seconds, he knows exactly how to disarm you. To hear more of my conversation with Questlove, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Christian McBride talks about attending Juilliard and the challenging audition period he endured to get in. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, 
fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This is Ile Ife from the Philadelphia Experiment a collaboration between Christian McBride, pianist Uri Kane, and Questlove. As a jazz musician, Christian McBride naturally spends a lot of time on the road. I wanted to know what life was like for someone that tours for a living. Man, I feel so fortunate that I get to do what I love for a living. You know, why complain? Yeah, things get a little hard every now and then. You know, you travel, you're on the road all the time. You don't get to see your family. You're um, married. I've I'm, I'm been married almost 20 years. And you have how many kids? No no kids. No kids. Uh, You're but, a genius. <laughs> <laughs> no kids. So the travel is, does your wife get to come with you sometimes? Oh, when I, she sings in my big band. So when I play with my big band, she travels with me. Perfect. But, I mean, she runs the foundation, so she's manning the fort at home. But, you know, it's like going on the road seven days a week, probably Forty to forty-five weeks out of the year, that that grinds on you oh, on, on your health, you know. But the flip side of it is like, okay, what else would you rather be doing? You know, I get to travel around the world mm-hmm. and meet people and play and in places, thing. 
You know, I mean, it's like there's nothing better than How that. How many people in your band now? So the band that I've been touring with the most for the last four years is called The New John. John is a slang terminology only used by Philadelphians. <laughs> what, how do you spell that? In, in New York, it would be joint. So John is J-A-W-N. The new John. The new joint. John. Yep, exactly. It's a yeah. Philly term. Philly term. Yep. Okay. And so that's just four of us, trumpet, tenor saxophone, bass, and drums. It's, it's a quartet. Quartet, yep. Uh-huh. And I have another group called Inside Straight, which is a quintet. That band was named by a, uh, I had a fan contest, a name the band contest. And a couple from Fort Bragg, California submitted Inside Straight. And I thought, hmm, you know, I actually do play poker. And uh, Inside Straight is the name of one of my favorite Cannibal Adderley albums. So it made sense. And I have a new group. I had my big band, which is just the Christian McBride big band. And uh, How many in that? 17. Really? Yeah. How much do they get to travel? Not much. Because it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. We've gone to Asia. We went to China and Japan. But we we got a grant to go on that tour. And we did a two-week European tour a few few years ago. So we don't get a chance to travel that often. But we get at least one gig every year here in New York or or in Newark. It's funny how... The, the bands are touring, and therefore I would assume more successful. The less people are in the band. Absolutely, yeah, man. You, you got to <laughs> break it down to a trio. You're going to get rich. Listen here, man. You got to balance their budget. <laughs> no, I don't know. Here now, when you are in Philadelphia and Winton calls you up there mm-hmm. at the Academy. When do you get to New York? What year? So that was 87 when Winton called me up to sit in. So two years later in 89. For you to go where? The Juilliard. There was no jazz program at Juilliard when I went there. What did you study? I went to study as a classical bassist. Because while I was in high school, I was also playing a lot of classical music. So I was playing in the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra, Temple University Youth Chamber Orchestra. So I had like a, a little parallel thing going. And even though my heart was in jazz... I had gotten good enough at classical music where my bass instructor said, you know, you should take the audition, you know, see what happens. I knew I wanted to be in New York. Again, this was this had nothing to do with classical music. I knew that I wanted to be in New York because I wanted to sort of go nag and 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 stalk all my favorite jazz musicians. So I said, well, the only way for me to get to New York is to go to college. And so Was that true? I thought Because so. you're the kid who's 15 who gets handpicked by Winton to play. I would have thought you would have gone to New York and you would have been walking through the doors and just playing. Well, you know, but my mom wasn't going to let that happen. Right. So, you wanted, <laughs> so everybody agreed you should get an education. Yes, yes. And so I only applied to three schools, the New School, Juilliard, and the Manhattan School of Music. Yeah, all within a few blocks of each other. Exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. So I took an audition for Juilliard and... Uh, Much to my shock, I got in. You know, I think back to how traumatic that was. And I wonder if they did that on purpose. Like, one thing that they probably shouldn't have done is you could hear the other auditioners before you, right? So I'm sitting outside of this audition room, and I can hear the other bass players in there. And I mean, they are awesome. You know, they're playing the Echo Sonata and the Dragonetti and the Kusevitsky, and I'm just sitting out there like, oh, man, I might as well go home. Because I'm not playing that. <laughs> oh, you know? Wow. I went in with my, my little, what did I, I played a Vivaldi Sonata, and I played a Benedetto Marcello excerpt from a Sonata. And I just thought, just in terms of repertoire, I probably won't get in, you know. But I took this audition, and uh, it went 
it was okay. I didn't think it was that great. But then two days later, I auditioned for the Manhattan School of Music. The bass faculty was almost exactly the same faculty as the Juilliard. So they heard me again. And that audition at MSM went really well. And so uh, I like to think that the bass faculty heard me and went, oh, that's what he really sounds like. You know, so there was no invitation to MSM. They, they, yeah, they I got, got I got, got invited. Both. Yeah, you got in both. Yeah, I, and I got into the new school. But uh, I thought that if I want to continue studying classical bass, I should go to Juilliard. Four years. I didn't make it. What happened? <laughs> I, I left. You left. I started working. I started playing with Bobby Watson and my dear friend, the late Roy Hargrove, had just moved to New York as well. And his career was about to explode. And Roy was like, hey, man, you're coming on the road with me. And so by the end of the school year, I'd started working enough that so I only knew, one year at Juilliard. Only one year. Right. Yeah. But that one year at Juilliard, I, I learned so much. And I met a lot of people. Audrey McDonald was my classmate. You know, it's funny that you say that about the, the blind audition or whatever, and you hear the other guys in yeah. the room. Because I remember in the early days when I was auditioning, it was the same. And that was, you know, we'd come to a place... The old rehearsal spaces in Midtown, which there were many of them, not as many now as there used to be. And we'd come to those spaces, and everybody would sit in a row of chairs, and every guy you were up against in that whole town was right, there. Right, There's Kevin Bacon, and there's that guy, and there's that guy, Ooh. and they're all there. And we all had the same thing, which was when you sat down, and the door opened, and out walked Kevin Bacon, and you're sitting there, and, the, and you know that something's going on in that room, somebody's in there, right. and the door opens, and it's Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> and we all used to lower our heads like, fuck, we're right, never getting right, this job. No. Right. Did you guys, like, w- when you're sitting there waiting to go in, w- are you guys speaking to each other? Was that sort of like Minimally. Right. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is I understand the benefits of the digital audition, online auditioning, that people who can't afford to come to L.A., right. they can't afford to come to New York. There's guys in Kansas City, and there's guys in Salt Lake City, and men and women across the country who are submitting remote, you know, digitally. But I said to somebody, I go, you know, the reality was, you walked into a room and you do the audition. Mm-hmm. And the casting directors who were prominent casting directors, typically for all these movies I was going up for back then, they were casting multiple projects. Uh, and they'd say to you, would you wait outside, please? And you learned later on that they said, he's not right for this movie, but he'd be great for this for other, other movie we're doing. Right. And there was a chemistry in the room that is just denied now that they've gotten rid of all the in-person auditions. Yeah. You know, with social media now, I mean, I, I realize it's the way of the world now and it's not going to change. But I meet young musicians and, it's, you know, Mr. McBride, you know, check me out. Tell me what you think. And they give me like a YouTube link. And I hear and see them on YouTube. And it's fabulous. But you get no energy. You can't really tell what it's like. You know what I mean? I got to look you in the eye. I got it. Exactly. I got to look you know, in the eye. Tommy LaPuma used to, the late great producer, Tommy LaPuma, who he produced Natalie Cole, George Benson, Al Jarreau, Diana Krall. He used to tell me all the time, he's like, you know, as a record producer, every day I'm getting thousands of cassette tapes. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, man, that, that sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he said, but I will not sign a singer unless I can experience them live because I want to feel what they're doing. I don't want to hear what they're doing. So, you know, anybody can get in the studio and doctor it up a little bit and sound good. I want to hear you live. You know, so, uh, yeah, the whole digital thing, it's, it's deep now. Christian McBride, if you're enjoying this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. 
And be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we return, Christian McBride shares the most challenging part of being a professional musician and band leader. You can listen to all of the music from this episode and more in a curated playlist of my favorite pieces from Christian McBride. You'll find a link to the playlist in the show notes of this episode. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. This is Christian McBride's New John. The track is obsequious from the album Prime. Christian McBride studied at Juilliard for only one year before he left to play on the road with jazz trumpeter Roy Hargrove. 
I wanted to know how his very first professional touring experience suited him. Oh, man, we went to Europe, and it was the summer of 1990. Now, I had gone to Europe the summer before with the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra, but it's hard to count that as my first tour because, you know, it was a bunch of other high school students, and my mom was one of the chaperones. It was a school trip. (laughs) It was a school trip. As we used to say. (laughs) Right, right. But uh, my first time actually getting a chance to see the world was with Roy Hargrove. How long were you over there? That first tour we did, you know, I played in this band for a year and a half, and we did, like, we were in Europe all the time. We did one month-long European tour, came home, did, like, six weeks of gigs in, in the U.S., and then we went back to Europe for another two weeks. So we, we were always on the road. When you're with a band, and you're a musician in a band, and you say you went out with, you know, Roy Hargrove's band. Yeah. So that means Hargrove's the decider. Yeah. What music is played, Mm -hmm. what the set list is. And for you, it's the same thing. Oh, yeah. What's the toughest part about leading a band? What's the challenge? I think there's a balance in, particularly in a medium like jazz. You hear a musician play and they do something that you like. There's a certain energy, there's a certain thing that they play that you like. You said, "I, I want that in my band. But I know some band leaders that, they like to rebuild a player. I'm not sure how wise that is, you know, because it's like, I hear you, you're great, and now let me change you, you know? So I think there's a balance in the band leader having a vision, having a certain sound in their mind, and then you bring somebody in to help you achieve that sound, but you like what they bring. Mm -hmm. So there's this give and take of like, I like what you do, but I need you to do this, Mm -hmm. you know? And then that person says, okay. And and then there's like this, this give and take. I don't know if that's so much of a challenge anymore because I tend to work with musicians who are really high level professionals. I haven't really had any rubs with with too many musicians, but that that's probably the biggest challenge. Well, but Pat Riley, I've, I've mentioned this before on other podcasts, when Pat Riley was coaching the Knicks, I went off to have lunch with him because we were going to do a movie, this friend of mine and I, about a professional basketball coach and the intensity of the NBA. And yeah. we went to lunch with Riley and we watched the Knicks train up in, was it New Paltz? Wherever they were up outside the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ran up there, watched the Knicks train, which was kind of amazing. And then we went to lunch with Riley. And I said, what's the job? I said, what's the challenge? He said, these guys have been champions at every level of their life. They've been winners. They've been champions. He said, they've been champions since they were eight years old. Right. High school, college, they get to the pros. He goes, how do I get them to care one more night? Right. See, that's the job. They've been playing at the highest level for 15 years. He goes, now they're here, they get millions of dollars, they're famous around the world. He goes, how do I get them to leave it all on the court yeah. and get out there and just blow and, really, and work hard? I think that's a challenge for musicians as well. That's what I'm well. asking, yeah. Yeah, because you, know, you, you travel all the time and you go from club to club, stage to stage. At some point, it might get a little blurry. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm tired, you mm-hmm. know? And then you, you, you fall into that danger of phoning it in, mm-hmm. you know? And... That's another challenge for me as a band leader. I need to keep my energy up because I always tell younger musicians, you need to follow the lead of the band leader. Mm-hmm. If the band leader is in a certain mode, you you follow that. You know what I mean? So, like, if if I'm in somebody else's band 
and they're ready to go. And then I don't have the right to say, you know, I'm tired. I don't really feel like putting it all out there tonight. I look at somebody like Michael Jordan. I look at somebody like Freddie Hubbard, you know, like Showtime. they gave it all every gig, whether it was 30 people in the audience, 300 or 3,000. They played the same way yeah. every night. You yeah. know, Oscar Peterson was like that, you know. Just give it all, all the time. Now, do you write a lot of music? Yes. You write some? Yep. And have you ever, because again, this connection between jazz and the movies, it creates the right, it's the right texture. Do you write for TV or film ever? Do you ever do any scores? I did my first work on a major motion picture just recently. I wrote some of the big band music in the upcoming Color Purple. They're doing a remake? Yeah, coming out on Christmas Day. I wanted to ask you, man, like being around all these great jazz legends and being like the the young kid among all these giants, one of my all-time favorite movies is Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Uh-huh. And man, when I see you in that, uh-huh. and, and, and also the music for that film is one of the few uh, film scores, if not the only one, that features the saxophone of Wayne Shorter. And so I remember, so I already liked the movie, but then I realized that was Wayne, so that's become like one of my all-time favorites, man. What was that like for you, man? Well, it was tough because I had to piss in their face for three days. <laughs> and these all these legendary actors that I loved. I right. worshipped them. And it was really tough. But I mean, I had a job to do. Yeah. My last question for you. Yeah. And that is that you have a uh, pre-show routine. Like, how do you get yourself clear? When I'm acting in the theater, I got to get clear. I get to the theater at six. I'm not glad seven, you three. asked me that. What, what's your routine? See, one thing about the jazz community is that it's really small. We all know each other. You know, I always, I always joke, partially joking, that jazz musicians probably know at least 50% of the audience, personally. <laughs> you know, and so everybody likes to hang out backstage. Other musicians show up, fans show up. They all want to come backstage and hang. And I have now realized that. I'm not good to speak to at least 15 minutes before showtime. Like, leave me alone. Do not talk to me. Don't come backstage. There's a zone you want to get into. Exactly. You know, I only want to be around the musicians who are in the band, you know. And the older I get, the more I realize how important it is just to have a little silence. You know, just... I don't want to do nothing. Just I just need some peace and quiet around me 15 minutes before showtime. You know, we... Wanted you to come on the show, and then I like when we do the research, I start to get it more absorbed in the stuff. You are so damn talented. Man. Oh man, you are so damn talented. It's an honor coming from you because I was watching that thing you talk about fast playing. You did the little, oh, yes. the little tips about fast yeah, playing. Yeah. I'm watching all these things, and, I'm, I'm, and as I'm watching you, and I start watching more and more of these clips, I'm thinking, there's nothing you can't do musically, there's nothing you can't do. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. What an honor. My thanks to Christian McBride. Be sure to check out Christian McBride live at the Newport Jazz Festival August 4th through 6th and at the Montclair Jazz Festival Block Party on August 12th. For more upcoming shows, go to christianmcbride.com. I'll leave you with The Shade of the Cedar Tree from Live at the Village Vanguard. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeart. Radio.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.